Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Amen. Brothers and sisters, please turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 6 through 11 this morning. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 6 through 11. Please give your attention to the reading of God's holy word. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, which, having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall your poverty come on you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. Brothers and sisters, thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord once again in prayer. Oh, Father. As we continue to consider the book of Proverbs and these early chapters, we come once again to a a very practical lesson as with uh, last week, how we do ask that you would help us to see the need that we have to work hard in this life, uh, not to be lazy. Uh, Give us the grace to to do so, uh, not for the sake of worldly ambition, but Lord, having a desire to please you. Uh, Grant us this grace, we do ask, by your Spirit, and through the preaching of your word, even your spirit working through the preaching of your word. For we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, uh, hard work is a Christian virtue. It is a good thing. It is something that we must pursue. Uh, now, as I say this, one of the, probably the, the most basic way to, to show this from the scriptures, to prove it, is to uh, show that Work itself is a creation ordinance. This is something that theologians often point out. It is a creation ordinance. It's something that God instituted when he created man. We see this in Genesis chapter 2. God creates man and he puts man in the garden to work and to serve it. Now, there have been a number of biblical scholars in recent days who have pointed out that there is a relationship between the work and serve and the work of the priests. Even granting that, it does not take away from the fact that there is work to be done and that that principle does apply generally to all of us in all of our circumstances. Hard work is a Christian virtue. And Adam was meant to work the garden and turn the garden into a city by his work, whereby the whole world would be filled with the glory of God as it is filled with those who worship him. That was the thing that Adam was called to do. That was in some ways ruined through sin. It is renewed through the Lord Jesus Christ, which means that hard work is something that we ought to strive for. We see this in other places in the New Testament as well. You think of the way in which Paul in Colossians 4 and Ephesians 6 will uh, will exhort and uh, command that those who are servants or even slaves, that they are to work and serve their masters well, not as those who are to be people pleasers, but as those who are seeking to please God, those who are doing all things knowing that, that God is the one who sees it and he will even reward those 
who faithfully work and serve within this life. You think of even a, a further reason why this is significant? The Apostle Paul speaks in Ephesians 5 of the need to redeem the time. There is a need to redeem the time. The idea here is that life is short. There are things that we have to do. There are purposes that God has given to us. There are things that must be done. And because the days are evil, because the time is short, we are therefore to redeem the time. You see uh, a similar kind of thing happening in Psalm 90, which we had just sung, where uh, Moses there in Psalm 90 is comparing the eternality of God with the, the short brevity of the life of man. And in light of that comparison, the days are evil, we, our life is short, they're filled with toils and struggles. What does he then say at the end? What's the last thing he says in the psalm? He says, Lord, establish the work of our hands. May it be that when we strive and when we work in this life, may it be that our work would be blessed by you. And so for all these reasons, for all these reasons, what we have to say is that the Bible teaches that hard work is a virtue. Hard work is a virtue. It's something that we must do. It is therefore even, you could say, it is sinful not to be working hard in this life. It's sinful not to be working hard in this life. Now, uh, in, in the world today, in our culture today, this is something that we are beginning to lose. Now, this, this, this country has historically been a country filled with, with many hard workers. It's been something of a, of a, a sort of cu a cultural virtue from the influence of Christianity. Uh, but even, even in, in other ages, even in times past, there have, there's always been uh, some who, whose only real desire in life is a life of leisure. The idea is if I work up to a certain point, I will have made enough money and then I can support myself and that will allow me to simply live a life of leisure. There is nothing else I have to do. I can just take it easy. You remember the Lord Jesus Christ actually addresses such a person in Luke chapter 12, this person who, who buys the bigger barns and he's able to fill it and he says, look, now you can just take it easy. And, and what he says is that, that that's a foolish way to live, uh, that God will come to that person. And he will say, look, your life is demanded of you now. It is, it, is not, it is not right for a person to simply be striving after a life of leisure. And there have always been people who have done this, but often, often today, this is, this is becoming something that is uh, more and more the desire of many, that they, that they live for the leisure of this life. But that is, that is not the, the, the perspective that we are to have as Christians. And in the world, uh, even, even as you see, there is, uh, certainly is a sort of back and forth of problems with regard to this particular, uh, this particular element of, of life. Uh, in the world today, there are those who are, on the one hand, uh, lazy, and they are committing the sin of laziness. And it's, it's easy to see on the other end, there's also another kind of sin, which is that there is a kind of worldly ambition and overwork that is done for the sake of spending things on yourself. And one of the difficulties, one of the temptations is going to be is that if you're more prone to laziness, it's going to be easy for you to say, well, I just don't want to be like those who are seeking after worldly ambitions and working too hard in that sense, and who are sitting in that way. And that can be a way in which you can be tempted to justify your laziness. And in the same way, there can be some who are overworking, so to speak, and, and not keeping boundaries the way that they should and doing things all for the sake of selfish ambition and then justify their actions by saying, well, I don't want to be lazy. But the scriptures teach something of a balance. And regardless of the kind of qualifications, qualifications that need to be put on the need to work hard, the reality is, is that where the balance is entails a necessity for hard work. There is a necessity in the scriptures to work hard within this life. And having given sort of a, a broad overview of the biblical teaching of this, it's then fitting that Solomon, 
in Proverbs, a book that's all about how to live wisely within this world, that he would address this issue as well. And this is what he's doing in chapter 6, verses 6 through 11. He is addressing laziness, that it is a great sin. And the point then is, is that the wise person, the wise person understands that life requires hard work. The wise person understands it. There are things that must be done in this life. There are even provisions. That's the, the emphasis here with regard to the ant. There are provisions for life that come from God. But if you were to ask, uh, how does God grant provisions and things that, that people need to them? Very often he does it by blessing the hard work of Christians. So the Christian says, God provide for me. And then he works hard and says, Lord, bless then. Give me wisdom in how I work and provide for me through the hard work by blessing the work of my hands. Uh, that is very often the way in which God uh, does in fact provide for his people. And the point that Solomon is making here is that there is a connection between laziness and poverty. That, that if, if there is a, a sluggishness, uh, if, you, if you are something that, someone that could be considered a sluggard by, by what Solomon is saying, then what he's saying is, is that that will lead to poverty. And we'll discuss the nuances of how we are to view poverty. But the point is that it is seen here as a bad thing. In this, in this context, there is a, a ruining of life that will happen if you are not willing to work hard. Now, this, this warning comes as the second of uh, three warnings in the beginning of Proverbs chapter 6 that forms something of a digression from, an, uh, from numerous exhortations about sexual sins and particularly the sin of adultery. We, we saw last week the first one had to do with putting up security for your neighbor. We saw how that was uh, something that was not wise because it's not really living in accordance with reality the way that, that God has ordered all things. It's not recognizing the reality of sin. And today we're going to be looking at the sin of laziness. And then in verses 12 through 19, which is the third passage, we're going to look at the wicked person in general. And this is uh, Solomon's teachings, again, in the midst of many exhortations about adultery, that point to uh, how a wise person ought to live in interacting with other kinds of people and in various situations. This is the way in which you can be, as Solomon has said in chapter 2, delivered from the ungodly man. There are certain ways and, and ways of living that are required of you uh, if you are to live in a way uh, that is pleasing and wise within this life. And the practical thing that he is saying here is that, that laziness leads to poverty. Laziness leads uh, to poverty. Now, the, the idea of laziness or a sin causing ruin in life, this has been a theme uh, in this section of the book of Proverbs. You, you'll remember that this is the same thing that Solomon emphasized with regard to putting up security for a neighbor. He says, you've been captured. The idea is you're going to suffer great loss. Here he's saying there's another way in which you can suffer great loss, and that is laziness. He said the same thing with regard to adultery. Adultery will destroy your life. Putting up security for a neighbor will destroy your life. Laziness will destroy your life. And wickedness in general, as we'll see next week, will destroy your life. It will destroy your life. And the wise person understands this and will act in a way that is in accordance with wisdom. So now in considering this passage, we're going to look at it under two headings as uh, Solomon gives this exhortation. There is first in verses 6 through 8 the, the comparison that he makes to the ant. So there is this metaphor that he brings in the comparison to the ant. And then there is uh, a more direct exhortation in verses 9 through 11 that is related to uh, the, the, the theme of sleep. So the exhortation of 
uh, not to be lazy is related to sleep. So do not be a lover of sleep in verses 9 through 11. So there's the, the so in, in both of these, the exhortation is the same. Do not be lazy. It leads to poverty. So uh, there is something about the ant that teaches you this. And there's something about laziness that is related to sleeping that is related to this. And we need to, to understand both of them if we were to understand Solomon's exhortation. Uh, so we'll look first then at verses 6 to 8 as we consider the exhortation in verse 6, the metaphor, the, so to speak, the, the, the lesson that you can learn, to put it in a better way, the lesson that you can learn from the ant. Solomon says, go to the ant, you sluggard. Go to the ant, you sluggard. And the point of this is, the point that Solomon is making is he's saying that there is something about nature. There's something about the things that God has made that can give you lessons about how you are to live. And here he's saying, with regard to the ant, the ant can actually teach you something about the way in which you are to live. Now, why is it the case? Why is it the case that Solomon does this? Why does Solomon do it? And uh, why is it even possible for Solomon to do it? Why, why, would it? why would we expect to be able to look around at creation and say that there are things in creation that can teach us about how we are to live? And that the wise person will be able to hear the lessons as they're recorded in the scriptures, but also hear the lessons, so to speak, as God communicates them to us in all of creation. And the answer to that is because we are to remember that creation itself is part of God's revelation. And this is what we see that Solomon is really picking up on. Uh, Creation is the revelation of the will of God. So there are things then that God has embedded in creation that teach us things about how we are to live, what we are to even know about God, what, what things he requires. And you'll remember that actually the Lord Jesus Christ is something very similar. As the one who is, is the, the king who is wiser than Solomon, he says, like Solomon, Solomon says, go to the ant and it'll teach you not to be lazy. Christ says, go to the birds of the air, lift up your eyes to the birds and you will see that you ought not to be anxious. That God's providential care of the birds of the air teaches you something about how you are to rest in God's providential care. And the point is that in in creation, there are things that God has made, and all of creation is in fact a revelation of God himself. And this is one of the reasons why a number of scholars will will point out that in the book of Proverbs in particular, there um, there is this relationship between wisdom and creation. And this is the thing that's caused some scholars to say, well, look, the the themes of covenant and redemption are not in the book of Proverbs because there's such this great emphasis on creation. The reality is that the whole Bible is consistently uh, pointing to the importance of creation and redemption. So those two things should never be pitted against each other. But there is something that the scholars are recognizing, which is that um, Solomon, in a number of places, expects creation to teach the principles and to affirm and supplement the principles that he himself is teaching. Now, as we think about the way in which nature reveals things about God and about what, the way we're it's supposed to live, we are to recognize there is, uh, it's not, it doesn't make it the same as Scripture. Uh, so there are some differences. However, there can never be any contradiction between the two. So, for instance, uh, in creation, though everything that is taught in creation is taught in the Word, there are some things that are taught in the Word that are not, in fact, taught in creation. There is nothing in creation that will teach you that the Lord Jesus Christ died for sinners and that there can be redemption by faith in his blood. That's not taught. Redemption is not taught in creation. Redemption is taught only in the scriptures. 
And yet, nevertheless, even though we would recognize there are some differences, uh, God uh, has, in fact, taught us many things in creation, and all the things that are taught in creation are consistent with the Scriptures. And because there is a consistency with the Scriptures, what that means is that the Scriptures can be useful to teach you how to get lessons out of creation. The Scriptures teach you. They give you examples. Here would be one, go to the ant. Christ, another one, go to the birds of the air. But the point is that those, those are general principles that then can be applied to other areas of life as well and, and to other things that we find in, uh, in creation. Now, one of the, the, the implications of this is, is that if you are in the field of, of science or more particularly biology, that uh, if, if your studies are going to lead you actually to wisdom, there is a necessity to go much further beyond what the atheists are doing today. Uh, the atheists will deny that there is any possibility of purpose within the things that have been made because they deny that they've been made. So the idea is that if everything here is here only by random chance, then there is no purpose. There's no real lesson that's being communicated. If you were to ask an atheistic evolutionary biologist, what can I learn from the ant that's, that is teaching me something about how I should act in my life? The answer is nothing. There is no possibility, there's no possibility of there being a lesson where there is an obligation for you to hear a lesson and to obey a certain thing from creation. There, there's, because the, the possibility of purpose is excluded by the, the, the foundation of what they're trying to do. If you're a Christian, though, and you're studying these things, there is actually another step that you are to, to, to take beyond simply learning things that are happening in creation. It's not just how did this happen or why is this thing useful for this particular animal, but even is there anything in the way in which God has structured these things that can teach me something about how I am to live wisely? Uh, that, is, that is really something that ought to be pursued uh, with regard to uh, Christian knowledge in biology. In this way, then, um, Christian knowledge is always then to uh, be use for the sake of advancing wisdom. And this is the reason why as well, the atheistic evolutionary, evolutionary biologist can never be wise. This is the reason why he could be described, even as the Apostle Paul describes some, there are, they are some who are always learning and yet never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. They can learn all these things, but they, they would deny the possibility of the things they've learned being of any real significance to us. They, they, they do not really teach us things about how we are to live in this life. There is no possibility uh, of it. And so Solomon says, all these things are possible. The implication is that all these things are possible and therefore go to the ant. It will teach you the same things as I am saying. Now, what specifically does the ant teach you? What specifically does the ant teach you? We see this in verses seven and eight. And Solomon is really pointing out two things about the ant. That, are to in, that carry with it instruction for you about how you are to live. The first is that they have no ruler. There's, there's, no, there's no king of the ants, so to speak. And then secondly, that the ants store up food. And really these two things are to be taken together. The idea is that even though there is no ruler, yet the ants still understand that they are in fact to store up food. The point is that the ant has the wisdom to recognize there are certain things that must be done in life if the life of the ant is going to be preserved. The life of the whole is going to be preserved. And they do not need to be told to do them. They know it 
based on the wisdom, so to speak, that God has given to them. They realize there must be the storing up of food and we do not need anyone to tell us. There's no organizational structure that we have to have to compel this sort of action. The ant naturally understands uh, these things. And the point then that Solomon is making is, is that you need to understand that life is like this. The ant has it figured out. Do you understand this as well? Do you need to be compelled by some authority above you, some human authority above you in order to do the things that are necessary in this life? Or do you recognize that this is in fact the nature of life and will you work hard to store up provisions for yourself, recognizing this is the way that life in fact is? What Solomon is saying here is that the ant is teaching you these things, the ant does these things, and this is a lesson for you. Just as the Lord Jesus Christ has said, look, the, the birds of the air don't have to, to save up and store things. They're provided for by God. Therefore, you should know that you're going to be provi provided for by God. So too, Solomon here is saying the ant understands there is a necessity of work. There's necessity of work if there is going to be provision. And therefore, you are to learn these things and act accordingly. Now, another implication of this is that Solomon is drawing a comparison between um, laziness and procrastination. Procrastination uh, is a form of laziness in this way. Uh, the ant can be seen not to be lazy by the fact that it does not procrastinate. There, is, there are things that need to be done and the ant does not wait to do them. It does not need to be told to do them. It does not put it off. The reason that procrastination is uh, both related to laziness and is in fact sinful is because in procrastination, there's obviously a putting off of things, a, a lack of desire to do things when they could be done, but there is this, this uh, presumption in procrastination. Uh, I believe that if I put this off now, I will be able to do it at the last minute. The presumption is, is that God will give you the providential ordering that will allow you to do something at the last minute. And you don't know that. You don't know that. There may be something that happens later that will prevent you from being able to do it. So there is a level of presumption with regard to the will of God. This is something that, that James points out with regard to uh, you know, those who are, who are doing business. He says, you know, some people say, you know, tomorrow I will go and I will do this and this and I will make this kind of profit and money. And he says, you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. Better to say if the Lord wills. If the Lord wills, I'll be able to do that. But if it is the, the Lord's will and you don't know what the Lord's will is, and God's given you the opportunity to do something that is an obligation for you to get done now, the, the, ob, the, the implication of that is that you must do the thing when you have the opportunity to do it. If you don't do it, you are presuming upon the will of God. You're presuming to know it. And, uh, and the reality is that that has, in fact, been hidden from man. It is sinful to presume upon uh, the good providence of God. And therefore, Solomon says, go to the ant, you sluggard, and understand that there is a work that is necessary in this life. Now, the exhortation in verses 9 through 11 uh, becomes uh, more direct. And the main theme that Solomon is pointing out is the theme of sleep. So there's a connection then between sleep, the inordinate desire for sleep, and the sin of laziness. Now, this is an amazing thing to find as you think about it. You know, Solomon living in the you know, 11th, 10th centuries BC, that even in his day, he could see that there is, even with, you know, without all the modern comforts of air conditioning and whatever else, all the wealth of the West and all this, that even then there were some people who desired to sleep. They desired greatly to sleep. There was this inordinate desire 
uh, for sleep. And the same, brothers and sisters, is true today. There, there is an inordinate, it is, it is a sin to have an inordinate desire for sleep. There are some who, whose life is centered around desiring the peace that comes from sleeping. And the point of the scriptures is that there, there, are, there is an obligation for work that is inconsistent with this inordinate desire for sleep. So Solomon asked the question in verse 9 to open up this theme. He says, How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? He's, answering, he's asking this question, obviously rhetorically, and the point is, is that do the work. And then he, he gives uh, the, the further explanation in verses 10 and 11. He says, you know, what, what, what happens is if there's a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the arms, this is always the way in which uh, sleep is justified. You know, let me just get a little bit more, five more minutes, ten more minutes. Let me just hit the snooze button one more time. That's the way in which sleep is justified. Then all of a sudden you've slept the whole day away. Solomon's recognizing that, that very pattern in, in human thought, the, the, the great temptation. There's just a, just a little bit more, a little bit more. But what Solomon says is if you do that, the result will be poverty will come upon you. It will come upon you like a strong man. It will hunt you down and will take everything from you. Uh, that is what Solomon is saying. Now, that's the main exhortation then. There's a link between the sleep of the sluggard and poverty. One important question that, then that we need to ask is, is that it is, is poverty a bad thing? Is, is poverty a bad thing? Now, uh, here, obviously, it is being shown to be a, a, a negative thing. In this context, it is clearly a negative thing. The reason why it is a negative thing here is because Solomon is speaking here of poverty as a consequence of sin. And this is something that we see all really throughout the scriptures. Uh, and even more particularly, even in the book of Proverbs, um, there are, there's a, a nuanced discussion that we have to have with regard to wealth. But one of the things that's clear is that sin in general leads to poverty. Wise living in general leads to wealth. That is something that Solomon points out over and over again. Now, there are all kinds of reasons why this pattern may not actually bring fruition within a, a, an individual's life. So we have other places in the scriptures where there are uh, those who are poor. Very often, in fact, the, the believers in, uh, in God in the Old Testament are called the poor, the humble. They are those who are, are, are oppressed by others. But the, the difference between that and what Solomon is describing here is that they are poor despite their righteous living. They are poor because of circumstances, uh, of circumstances that have happened to them. Solomon here is describing poverty as a consequence of sin. And so Solomon himself will say, even as he gives all these principles that show that wise living leads to wealth and that, uh, that sinfulness leads to poverty, he'll yet say, better the fear of the Lord with a little than wickedness with a lot, with, with, with wealth. Uh, as Solomon says in, verses 15, in verse 15, 6, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure with trouble. So even, even with, this, uh, with this qualification, it still, however, must be said that poverty will often come upon people when they sin. Poverty will often come upon people when they sin. And so this is an important thing to distinguish for us, even as we think about how we say uh, help and strive to help homelessness, ho people who are homeless within uh, this area. Uh, it is... If there is a poverty that has come upon a person because of sin, then the main way to help a person who is in that situation is to exhort them to repentance and to bring them into the worship of God's people. 
And that in, in if, if there is a pattern of sin that's producing poverty, then it really is useless to give the person money. You give someone money who is in a pattern of sin that produces poverty, then the result's going to be that that money then is lost because there, there is a, a sin condition that is producing uh, the poverty. Now, uh, the point that Solomon here is making then is that there is a connection then between laziness and this kind of poverty. Laziness is one of those things, one of those kinds of sins that will result in poverty. You remember the, the Apostle Paul says uh, something similar with regard to uh, laziness. He, he says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, If anyone will not work, neither let him eat. If you will not work, let him not eat. Uh, the point is, is that there is a natural poverty that comes from laziness and there's not even an obligation for it to be mitigated if a person is unwilling to work to support themselves. Uh, not only that, brothers and sisters, but uh, there can even be a kind of depression that comes from those who are lazy in this way. And the reason is because, as we've said from uh, Genesis chapter 2, God has made us to work. God, God has given us this as part of our purpose within life. There are things to do. You need to live for the glory of God. One finds fulfillment in this life when he is working to fulfill the purposes for which God has made him. And there is this, this natural joy and satisfaction that comes from a job well done when you, when you understand you've accomplished something that is significant, that is related to the purpose for which God has made you. And there is, on the other hand, a, a sort of outward attractiveness of a life of leisure that is spent doing nothing that yet ultimately will lead you to emptiness and to despair and to depression. Uh, now, in saying all this then, the, the implication is that Christians need to, to take their jobs seriously, their work seriously, and to do them with all their might. Uh, this also means that if you have no job, then there is uh, no excuse for lying around and not pursuing one. That if, if you have a job, do it with all your might. If you should have a job, if you're, the, if you're in a, a station in life such that it would be a natural expectation for you to be working. This is something that you must be pursuing with all that you have. It should be your work to find the work, so to speak. Now, there are different ways in which this ought to be applied to men and to women. So first, to the men in the congregation. Uh, this, this word especially applies to you because men, particularly as it relates to their families, have the obligation to support a family. They have, you have the, as the head of the home, there is an obligation on you to support the home. Uh, if it is your responsibility to seek employment and, and to even to seek a kind of employment that will enable your family to be supported. Now, I'll, I'll say this too. One of the great pitfalls for men is, uh, in today's world is an addiction to uh, computer games or uh, video games. Now, these are not bad in themselves. I'm not trying to say that it's sinful if you, if you like computer games or video games. What I am saying is, is that that is one of the ways in which there can be a temptation towards laziness that gets in the way of the necessary work that must be done in this life. It is, it is one of the things that is a great pitfall. Uh, I'll say that even this further. Uh, if you are unmarried and you want a wife, so if you're married, there's an obligation. You are the head of the home. You need to support your family. If you're not married, but you want to be married one day, you need to be pursuing employment such that the wife that you have will be able to be confident that you are able to support her. It is a perfectly reasonable thing. In fact, I would say it is a duty and requirement of a woman to consider whether or not the man she is considering marrying will be able to support her. And I, I would say 
I would never let my daughter date a person with an eye towards marriage who did not show signs of being able to move in a direction of being able to support my daughter. I would never give away my headship to someone who did not show me that they were going to be able to support my daughter in the, in the family. It is, it is a, a requirement. Work ought to be an important part of life. It's part of basic Christian maturity. Now, for women, uh, there, is a, there is a kind of pitfall that is specific to women, that is, that is different than men. And yet there is one nevertheless. Um, today, we are told that you know, women must work hard in careers, and uh, this is pushed by, by fe- the feminists. Um, very often, however, there is this contrast between working hard in a career and the opposite, which is basically doing nothing at home. And the idea is that there, is, there has become an abysmally low view of the requirements of being a good wife supporting the family at home. But this also requires great work. And it ought to be done with an eye towards working hard. Now, the reason why there's such a pitfall for this is because uh, today there are a lot of natural conveniences and helps that would enable, that do enable women who desire not to do much in the home to do nothing. Uh, There is, you know, if you don't want to learn how to cook, you can very easily order food. It's in abundance. Uh, If you don't want to know how to do things around the house, there's every kind of help uh, for those sorts of things. Uh, If you, you know, if you don't, you know, you can easily take a back seat to the schools with regard to uh, teaching your children in education. There there are helps such that, and society is trying to set up the world such that a woman actually does not need to do anything in the home if she does not desire it. However, in order to uh, keep the home in a way that is biblical, it actually does require a tremendous amount of work. And it is, in fact, a great and godly thing to do. So as you think just about uh, things that are are typical responsibilities of of women who are at home, you think of caring for kids, keeping the house clean, having meals made, uh, helping running the house even beyond just the the keeping of it clean. There are a number of things that that have to to happen uh, within a home in order for the home to be running smoothly. Helping a husband with his work, being engaged in the goals of the family, uh, bringing up the children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, instructing children. All of these things are such that if, if, a, if a woman is seeking to do them to the best of her ability, there is actually a great abundance of work. And to do them well brings a great blessing to a person's family. I'll say, I'll say this again, uh, even from another way, uh, with regard to marriage. Uh, a man is going to be attracted to a woman who is willing to work in these ways, who is willing to be a good wife and a good mother to his children, willing, willing to support the family uh, in this way. It is something that is attractive for, uh, for godly men. They are seeking godly women who are like this. And so there are certain pitfalls that men and women can fall into. We are living in a society that more and more prizes comfort, and there is a temptation towards laziness because of this. But a wise person who is living in accordance with reality who fears the Lord and learns lessons from nature, who understands his purpose in life, knows that this life is about working hard, that God has made us for this, and that there is something deeply rewarding about a job well done. And therefore, brothers and sisters, I I say to you, go to the end. Go to the end. Do not desire to live your life in such a way that it's just wasted by leisure. 
Do the hard work. There are things that need to be done. There are things that need to be done in this church for the sake of the advancement of the kingdom of God. Be about doing things that are in accordance with the purpose that God has given to you. He has not given you a lot of years in this, on this earth. He's given you very few years that will be filled with great toils and struggles. Pray that God would give you a heart to work hard, to seek to advance his kingdom. And remember, even as you think of the relationship of these things to salvation that you have in the Lord Jesus Christ, remember what the Apostle Paul says in, in Ephesians chapter 2. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of works, not of your own doing, lest any man should boast. It's all of grace. It's through the Lord Jesus Christ, through your union with him and being raised with him in, into the heavenly places. And yet... Paul himself says, you have been created by God for good works. You are his workmanship. The grace that he has shown to you is not, you've not been saved by good works, but you have been saved unto them. There are things that God has given you to do in light of the salvation that you have received. And it is to be your desire and ambition to work and to do the things that God has called you to for the sake of the advancement of his kingdom. That is, that is part of the implications of the redemption that you have received in him. And so, brothers and sisters, may God grant you the grace to live for his glory, to work hard in all of these things. And may it be that as Moses prayed in Psalm 90, that God would grant you the same blessing, that he would establish the work of your hands, that he would establish the work of your hands for the sake of the advancement of his kingdom. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we do thank you for your word, which does truly uh, touch us at every part of our lives, how thankful we are for the instruction that you've given to us. And Lord, how we do pray that you would uh, keep us from the temptation to uh, waste our lives away in leisure. We understand that leisure itself is not sinful and that there can be a measured use of it. And yet, Lord, uh, we know the temptations, the, the proneness are, are in our sinful natures that we have towards laziness. Uh, Lord, we do pray that you would grant us the grace to work hard, grant us the grace to work hard in a way that's not, not uh, in accordance with selfish ambition. Uh, but Lord, nevertheless, to work hard, uh, give us the grace to desire to see your kingdom advance, to see the darkness that is all around us, to see the way, the way in which your name is profaned among the nations and to desire to give ourselves to the work that would enable these, uh, the darkness to be pushed back. Lord, establish the work of our hands and grow your church in this way to the praise and glory of your name. For we ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can visit our website at newcovenantopc.com. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. If you've benefited from this ministry and want to know of ways you can help or support it, we'd like to make you aware of our new capital campaign to build a new building. God has recently blessed us with growth here at New Covenant. Over the years, our church has been small. It's gone up and down, but overall things have been tight financially and the church has been small. Now, by the grace of God, we are growing. We believe it wise in light of this to think about building a new building to facilitate even more growth. Our current building only seats 72 cannot fit any more seats, and if we were to fill every single one, every Lord's Day we would have no more than 72. The plans for our new building would more than double the capacity and enable us to grow to a point where we can be stable financially and even be able to help other churches. 
one of the things that we want to, to be is a church that is able to look beyond itself for the sake of the advancement of the kingdom of God. We believe that this new building can help us get there. And so we are praying that God would provide for us the funds needed to build a new building, that we would grow to fill it, and that one day we would even be able to plant a church ourselves. As you know, doing ministry here in the Bay Area, this is a very dark place. Uh, there is a great need for the light of the gospel to shine, particularly in this place, uh, through the preaching of the word. And so if you want to support us and to, to support our efforts to see this new building built, please consider giving a financial gift to the center. You can give by sending us a check with building fund in the memo line. Our address can be found on our website. You can also give by Zelle by sending the money to nc.opcssf.treasurer at gmail.com with building fund in the memo line. May God bless you with a greater knowledge of his word and zeal for his name. Thank you.